Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hello, my friends. Welcome back. Today's episode is number 12, Eat a Lunch That Packs a Punch. Yes, today we are talking about the Victory Lunchbox. I wanted to let you guys know that after I posted my last uh, podcast episode about canning, I received in the mail something I'd ordered. It's an original ration canning sugar application. I'm going to be putting this on my blog along with the canning jar post I talked about. That's just like an extra little post on my blog. So yeah, go check it out at victorykitchenpodcast.com. As I record this episode, we are still awaiting election results for this very historic uh, 2020 presidential election year. So It actually reminded me of a 1945 diary that I have. And the woman who wrote this journal talked about when FDR passed away and Truman took office and just how, you know, crazy those times were and just uncertain. And, you know, I I think we can relate a little bit. So whichever way the election results go, I hope this podcast episode can you know, provide a distraction or some entertainment um, that's much needed right now, I think. Victory lunchboxes. This is my most favorite, favorite topic to study when it comes to home front food ways of the 1940s. I'm not sure what it is exactly about it. I just get so excited. (laughs) Maybe it's because I don't have that much of an imagination when it comes to preparing lunches. But (laughs) um, I just... It's so much fun, and there's a lot of cool experimentation that can happen when you try out these um, wartime lunch ideas. So let's just dive into this thing. Why was the Victory Lunchbox a thing in World War II? The number two reason is morale. I know I talk a lot about morale in other podcasts, and it was a really important aspect of the war. The feeling of the people had a a huge reflection on how they worked. If the morale was good, then things were much more peaceful on the home front. (laughs) But the number one reason was nutrition. Absolutely. This was the thing that the government was the most concerned about. And as I was going through one of my lunchbox um, cookbooks from the 1940s, I came across this part in the introduction to... Recipes for Victory Lunchbox Meals. This was produced by the Pet Milk Company. And it says, The failure of so many young men to pass the physical examinations for our armed forces, due to the results of faulty nourishment, has done more to stress the value of a well-balanced diet than all the teaching of years gone by. And I've talked about this before, too, that a lot of young men failed the nutritional aspects of joining up for the armed forces because they didn't have a good diet. And that's really what it just came down to. America had plenty of food, but they were not healthy. And so this lunchbox campaign was a way for the government to re-educate the public and to get its citizens in a much better place health-wise. There is a really cool wartime propaganda film talking about nutrition from 1943. I'm going to leave the link for this. It's on YouTube um, and I'll have it at my blog and my resources. It says in the film, many Americans are starving not for lack of food, but because of poor eating habits. It also states every American worker should have three square meals a day. So workers in factories and offices needed more protective foods due to the longer hours that they were working. The film also points out that people in wartime were working harder, so they needed better food and more of it to protect their health and prevent absenteeism due to their poor nutrition. It says, 
Whether at work and at home, in restaurants and cafeterias, in their selection of foods, American workers choose the way to good or to poor health, to build or undermine the strength of our nation. Eventual victory in this war may depend on what we eat. We can build, here in America, a tougher, more vigorous nation, a nation with better morale and greater strength of mind than the world has ever known. Food can build a new America. And at the end, the words on the screen say, U.S. needs us strong. Eat nutritional foods. So if that's not propaganda, I don't know what is, but it is a really huge message that food can build a new America. And this line that they say, eventual victory in this war may depend on what we eat. That is a really compelling statement. Um, And I think it's a really good window into that time period. I think we all have our kind of preconceived notions of people in the 1940s. And I, for one, never thought of them as an unhealthy people. In fact, I think most people today think, oh, they ate so much better back then. But in this, uh, I don't know if it's this wartime film or another one that I saw about nutrition, they show a woman ordering her usual, which was coffee and two donuts for breakfast. And they were trying to point out like, this is not going to cut it anymore. You can't eat like this if you want to be healthy and have the energy you need to work these really long hours at these really hard jobs. Now, there were not that many propaganda posters from the government about victory lunchboxes in particular, but there are some really good advertisements, and I'll have some of these on my blog. One of them is from a cover of the Argosy magazine from July of 1944. This is one of my personal favorites. It shows a woman welder using her welding torch to toast her sandwich from her lunchbox. I just think that's so awesome. Um, The most famous propaganda poster from the government, I think there's like three (laughs) that I found. Um, But the most famous one shows the the food wheel at the center with the seven food groups. And I'm going to be talking more in detail about this in my next episode, which is going to be about the nutrition But on the poster, it says, eat the basic seven every day, feel better, work safer. And then it has different little sub subjects on this poster with cute little illustrations. Um, One is protect yourself from illness. Another one says, helps you dish it out, which uh, means like working really hard at your job. Another says for strong bones and teeth and builds muscle. 10 strike for victory, fight that tired feeling, and good eyesight pays. And the focus on this was mostly for war plant workers, but in so many other things that I found in my research, they were talking about not just war plant workers, but office workers, housewives, and children. Now, most of the the resources talk about war plant workers, office workers, and children, but One of my ration cookbooks has a lunchbox section. It's called Victory Recipes, featuring better recipes for wartime. And this is from about 1943. In its lunchbox section, it talks about not just school children or people working in an office or people going at the war plant. It has the lunch menu that stays at home because housewives need good nutrition as well. And I read some in another one of my ration cookbooks. I can't remember which one, but it, it has a little paragraph talking about how housewives, they work really hard and that they need to keep up their nutrition and health as well. Because if they're sick, it makes it harder for them to support those, you know, working outside the home or their children. So all in all, the whole message is everyone needs to have top notch nutrition and everyone needs to stay healthy and not get sick. Because a healthy population was a working and a happy population. There are less sick days, less time off, more production on the home front and in factories. So that's really the bottom line right there. I wanted to take a little sidestep and talk about the lunch boxes themselves. I think these are so interesting. Uh, In this ration cookbook, well, it's called Ration Cookbook by Demetria M. Taylor from 1943. It says, the lunchbox goes to war. 
Today, the lunchbox is seen everywhere. It travels on buses, trolley cars, subways, day coaches, and Pullmans. It goes to factory, school, and office. It marks Americans at work, Americans united in a common cause. The lunchbox solves a wartime food problem. Workers on the swing shift and the graveyard shift would find it difficult to get a good meal at midnight or 4 a.m. if it weren't for their lunchboxes. Trains that formerly carried at least two dining cars now have one. And servicemen, quite rightly, have priority on the food served. When I read this, I was actually I I learned quite a lot that I didn't know before, that the lunchbox was solving this wartime food problem, and these odd shifts that people were working. Yeah, a lot of restaurants weren't open, so they needed to be able to eat, and the lunchbox solved that problem. And I did not realize that during wartime, trains. They carried at least two dining cars, and then in wartime, they carried one. And servicemen had a right to that food first. So, you know, bringing your lunchbox on the train was a great idea. Um, A lot of cool aspects of the wartime that, you know, I didn't realize. Now, the lunchboxes themselves came in a variety of materials and shapes. There was the metal lunchbox, which I think most of us think of. There was kind of the lunch pail, which was like a reused lard bucket. And I never understood this until I actually bought a vintage lard bucket. And it's got a very nice, tight-fitting metal lid and a little handle. It makes a pretty handy carrying container. There was also this very cool invention called a Victory View Kit lunchbox. View spelled (laughs) V-U. This was a see-through plastic lunchbox so in some factories they had to check lunchboxes for safety and to make sure things weren't being stolen I guess and having a clear lunchbox made it made things go faster so they didn't have you didn't have to dump out the contents of your lunchbox every time you walk through the gate they could just look inside it from the outside (laughs) a friend of mine just acquired an original one and she's very kindly taking some pictures of it for me and I will have that on my blog post about this uh, episode. So be sure to check that out. Uh, I've also seen references for lunch carriers that were just a box. (laughs) Um, That's about as basic as you can get. I've also seen pictures for a canvas one and it looks very similar to the ones I've seen today. There's also a foldable or collapsible cardboard victory lunchbox. In one of my lunchbox cookbooks, they have a pattern for a crocheted bag that you could crochet yourself and put your lunch in there and take it to work. And finally, paper bags, good old paper bags. (laughs) And there is a, a special tip if you do take a paper bag to work. And it is in this quote from, what do we eat now? by Helene Robertson, Sarah McLeod, and Francis Preston from 1942. It says, The lunchbox itself is an important piece of equipment. It should be of sturdy construction, preferably metal, easily carried, and by all means equipped with a thermos bottle for carrying a hot beverage or soup. That it be neat and trim of appearance is even more important than for the dining table at home to be so. The dining table has the warmth and cheer of the room to enhance its appearance. While the box has nothing save itself and its packings, to make it inviting. In case paper bags are used for the lunch, if a center core of cardboard slightly narrower than the bag is inserted, it helps to keep the sandwiches in good form and prevents their being crushed. That is a great tip. I wish I had known that when I was packing a paper bag lunch, especially on field trips. I can't tell you how many times I had a smushed peanut butter honey sandwich in my lunch bag. Not very exciting to eat when everyone else has like Lunchables. (laughs) In another book called Coupon Cookery by Prudence Penny from 1943, it says the lunchbox must be washed with suds, scalded, aired, and kept scrupulously clean. This is something that was very important. You don't want like a yucky smelling lunchbox to put a new lunch in and then it sits for several hours before you eat it. 
That is the last thing you want. So in many sources, they talk about making sure you clean out that lunchbox. And that's why metal, I guess, was preferred because it was something easy to scald and clean and air dry. The benefits of having like cardboard, like a collapsible cardboard box or paper bag or a box itself was that they were disposable. So you didn't have to worry about having your lunchbox checked at the end of the day because you just threw it away um, when you were finished. Like it said in the other quote, being able to bring a thermos was especially important because you could carry soups, hot beverages like coffee or hot chocolate, or cold drinks like lemonade or fruit coolers. And these also, they talked about making sure you scald and clean these thermoses, air dry them really well so that they are fresh and ready to go for the next lunch. Okay, so what was supposed to go into these nutritious lunches? In one of the books in my collection called Health for Victory, How to Pack Lunchboxes for War Workers, 1943. This was one of those Westinghouse Health for Victory books, and it was specifically about packing lunches. I really love this book. It's got so many great ideas and recipes in there. It says, what is a good lunch? A good lunch must nourish. It has a big job to do. A good lunch must taste good, or it may not be eaten. A good lunch must carry well, or it will be unappetizing. A good lunch is a secret weapon for victory. But no weapon is any good unless it is loaded, and loaded with the right ammunition. No lunchbox is any good unless it is packed every working day with the right kinds of food. Because food is the ammunition that keeps war workers strong and healthy, and on the job, turning out the vital equipment our fighting army needs. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I love this quote so much. I love their theme that food is a weapon and it's not, you know, weapons aren't any good unless it's loaded and with the right ammunition. <laughs> so really appropriate um, analogy coming from wartime. But, you know, it wasn't an easy job. Packing a nutritious lunch, I mean, you have to educate yourself about what is nutritious and how to keep it balanced and making sure they're getting everything they need for the day. In Ration Cookbook, the one I mentioned before by Dimitri M. Taylor, it says, the lunchbox is a challenge to the homemaker. It takes originality, imagination, ingenuity to avoid monotony. It is important that the man, woman, or child who totes the lunchbox should open it with keen anticipation and not be disappointed in the contents. It is important that the food be interesting and tempting as well as nutritious. Lunch, whether carried in a box or ordered in a restaurant, is an essential part of the nutrition pattern of the day. Therefore, it cannot be haphazardly selected. The health of the school child, the office worker, the factory worker are all part of the health of our nation. Pack health in the lunchbox. All right. So as I've read this, uh, I've had a lot of things going through my mind. One of them is my own feelings as a school child um, opening my lunch. <laughs> that my mom packed for me. And, you know, she did a great job. But I guess as a child, I didn't realize I could ask for something else. I had pretty much the same lunch every day. And I can tell you, I was not excited to open the same stuff every day. And this is not my mom's fault. <laughs> it's just, you know, my own, I don't know. Yeah, lack of imagination too. But I remember my friend, sometimes brought dill pickles and I always had carrot sticks those dang carrot sticks <laughs> and uh so sometimes we would trade because she would get tired of pickles because I guess she got them a lot and yeah um some days she didn't want to trade and I was so disappointed why did it not occur to me to ask my mom for dill pickles <laughs> I don't know but I told my mom about this years later and she's like Sarah I would have given you dill pickles <laughs> dang it all those wasted days of disappointment <laughs> anyway you know so it's a real feeling like this feeling of disappointment when you eat, open your lunch um if you don't like it you're not going to eat it and that is a wasted meal of possible nutrition in your day I also have to say that as I've studied wartime lunches this um this quote reminded me of this that I I was not the same person after I studied this it changed how I thought about packing my husband's lunch because I'm just the food person in my family. So I'm always thinking about food, how I can feed my family. And so I just take it on myself to pack his lunch. He does do it. But when I take a peek, sorry, honey, not up to spec. 
<laughs> so I sometimes supplement when he's not looking. But um, yeah, it's really changed how I think of his meal for the day. You know, when he opens it, I I try to make sure it's um has kind of a, a broad range of things. And I, we're going to talk about that in a little bit, actually, like what actually goes into these lunches. But first, we need to talk about the proper lunch packing equipment. In this, the Health for Victory Westinghouse um, lunch, how to pack lunch box book, it has a list of proper lunch packing equipment. So what you need is waxed paper, a supply of jelly glasses or paper containers, a small meat grinder, small set of salt and pepper shakers, and paper napkins. It also says to set up in a lunchbox work corner, a sharp knife, a breadboard, small bowls for mixing sandwich fillings, string, rubber bands, and scotch tape if available, several spoons, including a tablespoon, and a box of toothpicks. Now, some of this might not make much sense, but we have to think in terms of you know, in the 1940s, what kind of materials did they have available for packing things or, you know, containers to put things in? There wasn't Tupperware. <laughs> there wasn't any plastic bags. So wrapping a sandwich in wax paper was really a good way to go because it kept moisture in, kept other moisture out, and you just keep it together with string or a piece of scotch tape. Also keeping things like putting or a salad, like a potato salad in jelly glass with the lid is was a really smart way of keeping that fresh. And the meat grinder was specifically for making sandwich fillings. They used a lot of paste-based sandwich fillings. And having that meat grinder made it, you know, right there at your workstation for making lunches, you know, made a lot of sense to just have it all in one place and you could make your sandwich fillings right there. All right, so once you have all those supplies gathered, you need to know what should be going into these lunches. In the cookbook I mentioned before, Victory Recipes, it has a list called Hunches for Lunches. Number one is sandwiches. Two or three sandwiches, at least one of meat, egg, poultry, cheese, or fish. For variety, include meat salad and plain bread and butter sandwiches, or try an easy-to-carry main dish. Two is raw vegetables. They may be used as a sandwich filling in salads or as a relish. Celery, cheese stuffed celery, radishes, a tomato, sliced cucumber, carrot or turnip sticks, wedge of lettuce or cabbage, at least one. And they're talking about sandwich fillings. I've come across recipes that are like ground up raw vegetables moistened with a little bit of mayonnaise or cream cheese. And that's the sandwich filling. So that's kind of what they're talking about. Number three is fruit. Apple, orange, grapes, stuffed dates, prunes, figs, raisins, or cooked fruit. At least one. Raw, cooked, or canned. Number four is bread. Emphasis on variety. White, rye, whole wheat, soft buns, muffins. And I'd like to also add quick breads. I've seen in a lot of lunch ideas from wartime, they talk about using quick breads like an orange honey loaf as your sandwich bread, which is brilliant, I think. I've never thought of that before. Fifth is something sweet. Cakes, like cupcakes, gingerbread, spice cake, nut bread, or puddings, tapioca, cornstarch, gelatin, custard. Those are the different types of puddings. And a surprise, small piece of maple sugar, candy, or popcorn ball. And sixth, hot food, soup, cocoa, tea, coffee, milk. This adds much and may either be carried in a thermos container or purchased at the plant or school restaurant. Do not pack creamed meat, fish, or poultry dishes. These may sour when kept warm several hours. I really love that they talk about, and quite a lot of these other books talk about, including a surprise on top of all the other things in the lunchbox, like a favorite piece of candy or fudge. Now, a while ago, I did like a ration cooking challenge on Instagram, and one of the days was like wartime lunch. And well, I made myself a lunch, like a wartime lunch, with all of these things in mind. And that's something also that I've learned as I've studied about wartime lunches. They talk about how important it is to have different temperatures and different textures. 
And I've never thought about this before, especially the different temperatures. So I made this victory lunch and I made sure to include like potato chips along with my sandwich. I had fresh or I think I had some canned fruit. But then I also had a hot drink, which is something I normally don't have with a meal. But I was amazed at by the end how satisfied I felt because I'd had such a wide range of interesting temperatures and textures. It really does go a long way towards feeling satisfied at the end of your meal. And that was really the goal was to have that nutrition and to feel satisfied after your lunch because it just gave you that much added energy. Now, it was up to the housewife to plan and execute these lunchbox menus. But sometimes uh, they, you know, maybe there wasn't anyone at home to, pr- to provide these lunches or for whatever reason, they weren't able to bring a lunch. So in that wartime nutrition film that I mentioned before, it said that in order to keep up the health and morale, many war plants set up central food kitchens to prepare appetizing, nutritious meals for the men who build the ships and make the guns. So this is also an important thing to note that, you know, not everyone had to carry a lunch box to work, that there were some places that set up these food kitchens, and that includes schools. Schools also had cafeterias where they provided like a hot lunch, but not not everybody had that. And a lot of kids, especially, went home for lunch. A lot of workers even went home for lunch. They didn't always bring a lunch. So I wanted to read these tips for packing a successful lunch box. This also comes from the Victory Recipes cookbook. It says, number one, pack lunchbox as late as possible. Uh, this makes sense because they didn't have like those little freezer packs that we, <laughs> which are so convenient today. Um, so pretty much whatever temperature the food was when you packed it, that's what you tr- had to try and keep it at. <laughs> but you know, it would warm up throughout the day. So you just need to pack it as late as possible to make sure it was still a good temperature when they finally ate it. Number two was to mix sandwich fillings the night before and then store in the refrigerator in separate little containers. Number three, don't put lettuce leaves in sandwiches. Wrap separately in waxed paper. And this was so that the lettuce didn't wilt. You wanted it to stay cool and crunchy for that very important aspect of texture. And who wants to eat wilted lettuce at lunchtime? Not me. (laughs) Number four, any food you can put up in paper containers, puddings, potato salad, etc. Chill in the container in the refrigerator overnight. They will keep cool five to six hours. Yeah, I mean, they didn't have the insulation and chilling technology like we do today. So that's really smart to put them in their separate little containers and chill them separately in the fridge so that they were as cold as they were going to get when you put them in the lunchbox. Uh, Number five tip is for night shift workers, pack lunch in units, wrap each unit in wax paper. So, you know, wrap them all together. You know, if you're going to have two separate meals that you're packing, um, you know, wrap them separately in wax paper to keep them cool. Number six, in packing the lunchbox, put the heavier things such as fruit at the bottom. You know, pretty common sense right there. But how many times have you had an apple on top of your sandwich? Not the greatest thing to discover in your lunch. Tip number seven is it's a good idea to have a small salt cellar that stays right in the lunchbox. Be sure to put paper over the end so the salt won't spill. Have another for sugar, but be sure to mark them. (laughs) Sorry, that was just funny. If you have an extra salt cellars, you can wrap the sugar or salt in paper. Even though you did your best to season whatever sandwich filling, you know, the person eating it might have different tastes. So having that extra salt or pepper um, and sugar for their drink or whatever, um, you know, was important so that they can eat it and feel happy. Uh, Tip number eight, don't forget to include a spoon or a fork if needed and a couple of paper napkins are a good idea. Tip number nine, a whole orange is refreshing. To make it easy to eat, carefully cut through the skin only, from stem end to blossom end, making about eight cuts around the orange. Carefully start peeling back the rind, then wrap a piece of wax paper around the orange to keep peeling in place. This makes the orange much easier to eat. And I have to say, like, if I got an orange as a kid in my lunch, it depending on how I felt that day, I might not eat it because 
peeling an orange is hard work and it gets under your nails and gets your hands all covered in citrus oils. And it's just not very fun. <laughs> so having it pre-cut and peeled like that, that is awesome. And it really makes it, you know, that much more likely that they'll eat it. Tip number 10 is a tremendously important daily task is to thoroughly wash the lunch pail and especially the thermos bottle. Oh yes, like I mentioned before. <laughs> Allow thermos jug to air when not packed in lunch pail, at least twice a week, scald with boiling water to which one teaspoon baking soda has been added. So really great tips from Victory Recipes. Now, in case you haven't been able to tell, sandwiches were king. Sandwich fillings were a huge aspect of wartime lunches. Now in that Westinghouse How to Pack a Lunchbox cookbook, it has this section called Varieties, the Spice of the Lunchbox too. You don't like the same thing for dinner day after day. Neither does the person who carries a lunch. So try not to pack the same things two days running. Most sandwich fillings, desserts, and so forth will keep for several days in the refrigerator, but be sure you put them in a covered container. Even the bread keeps better there too. Do the unexpected and make each lunch a surprise. Here are a few suggestions. You'll think of many more. So these are a, a different set of tips and advice. And let me tell you, I have a, a little stack of wartime cookbooks here that talk that have a section about wartime lunches and they all have their own advice. But I really liked the advice in this one too. The first tip is vary the bread. Use brown bread, cornbread, whole wheat, raisin, nut, oatmeal, graham, rye, cracked wheat, soya, or enriched white bread. They add variety and make a big difference. I think this aspect of wartime lunches was the most mind-blowing to me. I mean, I know there's different breads out there, and I've had different breads growing up, and even as an adult, I like eating different breads. But like using them strategically in your lunch to create variety. Like I'd never thought of that before in that way. And this is a really key aspect of wartime lunches that you'll see. Their second tip is to change the sandwich fillings. For meat, you can try roasted, braised, or stewed, sliced when cold, or ground and seasoned. Seasoned deviled meat, chicken sliced or chopped and seasoned, tongue or heart sliced cold or ground and seasoned, corned meat, sliced or ground with pickle. Another sandwich filling was eggs, hard cooked, served whole, sliced or chopped and seasoned, hard cooked and mixed with green peppers and celery as a sandwich spread. So like an egg salad. Another sandwich filling was cheese based, ground cheese with olives or pickles or creamed and combined with chopped meat or vegetable or sliced and combined with bacon, cottage cheese dressed up with mayonnaise and finely chopped peanuts or cheese spreads. And then the last type of sandwich fillings were categorized as others. Peanut butter with carrots or honey and yeast or orange marmalade or chow chow with peanut butter, keep in mind. So peanut butter and carrots, peanut butter and honey and yeast, peanut butter and orange marmalade or peanut butter and chow chow. Dried fruits and nuts ground together, moistened with cream, mayonnaise or fruit juice, mashed baked beans, raisins, carrots, peanuts ground together and moistened with salad dressing, which salad dressing is like Miracle Whip. <laughs> there are so many lists of sandwich filling ideas out there in these wartime recipe books. I wish I could share them all with you because they all have really interesting ideas. One of the most surprising ones was peanut butter and chili sauce. I was really scared to try this one, but... I mixed it together and you guys, it's not that bad. You sometimes you have to think of peanut butter in a savory sense. I grew up with eating peanut butter and Miracle Whip lettuce sandwiches. Most people are going to cringe when they hear that because ew, peanut butter and Miracle Whip. Why would you combine those two? But this comes from my grandmother, well, from my mother who had it from her mother. <laughs> it's just a family thing and she got it from the 1930s when peanut butter and mayonnaise was combined together for some unknown reason. <laughs> but my family still eats it. I have yet to convince one of my children to eat it. I'm working on it. <laughs> but peanut butter and Miracle Whip is so good together, you guys. So when you are looking at wartime recipes, you really need to keep an open mind 
for these sandwich fillings because they really will surprise you like peanut butter and chili sauce. All right. So continuing on in this book, it has a section called lunches a man or woman can work on. So I wanted to read you a week's worth of lunches that are meant to go in a lunchbox because I I think the only way you can get a really good sense of what a well-rounded lunchbox looks like is by reading a, a variety of menu ideas. And this is just for one week. In this Westinghouse Health for Victory book, I will be putting a picture of the entire month's menu of lunchbox ideas on my blog. So you can get a really good sense of what they put in there. All right, so day one, cheese and dried beef sandwich spread on rye bread, peanut butter and honey sandwich spread on brown bread, whole tomato, fresh applesauce, milk or coffee or tea. Day two, meatloaf sandwich on whole wheat bread, cream cheese and jelly sandwich on rye bread, carrot sticks, celery hearts, whole apple, milk or coffee. Day three, mashed potato soup, vegetable meatloaf on whole wheat bread, grapefruit sections, honey cookies, and milk. Day four, bacon cheese sandwich spread on rye or whole wheat bread, liver sandwich spread on enriched white bread, pickled beets, cottage cheese salad, whole orange, milk, or lemonade. Day five, flaked fish sandwich on enriched white bread, pimento sandwich spread on rye bread, carrot strips, pickles, baked apples, hot chocolate. Day six, Cream of tomato soup with crackers, chopped meat sandwich on enriched white bread, molded apple salad, gingerbread, milk, or coffee. Day seven, bacon and cheese sandwich spread on whole wheat bread, soya bread and butter sandwich, pickles, autumn glow salad, honey crisp cookies, milk or coffee or tea. Okay, so what are some of the things you noticed in these lunches? What I noticed was that there was savory and sweet going on. There's cold drinks and hot drinks. And then, you know, the fresh fruit, vegetables, and a dessert. Now, one thing that they don't mention in this these particular menus is the little surprise or treat that you would put in the lunch. But I don't think there's a need to mention that because that was solely based on the personal preferences of who you're preparing the lunch for. Whatever favorite candy that they like, you could sneak in there. Now, one interesting thing that I came across in my research is that you need to keep in mind who you're packing the lunch for and the work they do makes a difference. This also comes out of the Westinghouse um, How to Pack a Lunch box. You have to keep in mind, you know, the type of work that they do. So not so active like office or sitting down a great deal in their job, you prepare them a lighter lunch. So like one sandwich, some soup, and, you know, a fresh fruit. Moderately active, you're on your feet all day and doing work that requires more skill than strength, you give them kind of a moderate lunch. Very active, doing hard physical labor all day on a farm or in a factory, driving a truck and so forth, you have make for them a substantial lunch. And that would include at least two sandwiches, if not three. And then there were school children, definitely a lighter version of the adult lunch, but still keeping in mind the textures and the temperatures <laughs> for that school lunch and always include a dessert. <laughs> Kids need their cookies, okay? And then, like I said before, the homemaker who stays at home, they need to have a specific kind of lunch. And I think the ones that they talk about for homemakers are like between the lighter lunch and like a moderately active lunch because of the work that they do at home is actually, I mean, if they do a lot of like the cooking and cleaning, that's a lot of physical labor there. <laughs> um, they also talk about keeping in mind their shift, especially the night shift. So when war workers eat depends on when they work. So the first shift, 6 a.m. to 2 p.m., they would have an 11 a.m. packed lunch. Second shift, 2 to 10 p.m., they would have a 6 p.m. packed lunch. And then the third shift, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., would have a 2 a.m. packed lunch. 
And they talk about how important it is to not forget these night workers. You know, they're not eating dinner at home with their family. They are eating on the job. Um, And to keep that in mind when you pack their lunch. Now, I don't think this episode would be complete without me talking about a really fun experience that I had teaching a homeschool co-op class. I taught a cooking class called History in the Kitchen, World War II edition. (laughs) And so I used that semester to teach the kids about wartime rationing. And we made all kinds of really fun American ration recipes. But I thought it would be fun to include a challenge at the end where they had to compete in teams. They were very gung-ho about this. And what the theme was, was wartime sandwiches. So it was the ultimate sandwich challenge. Now, what they had to do was the second to last class, I brought in all these sandwich filling ideas from wartime. And I provided a variety and they had to choose, I think, six different ones because there were two different teams. And they picked them with the opposite team in mind. Um, but I did warn them that all these ideas were going into a container and I was going to pull them out. And so they might be subject to trying that sandwich. But <laughs> so they went to work. They went, they combed through these lists in their teams and I thought they would play it safe, but oh no, there were, I think at least three liver based sandwich fillings that were chosen. (laughs) Um, They chose some really wacky ones that um, I was like, okay, guys, (laughs) that's what we're going to do. I I felt really worried for them (laughs) because they were going to have to try these. Uh, So I made up all the sandwich fillings that they chose. And then I brought them the next class. And so they had to pull out you know, the name of one from the container I had and I would spread it on a piece of bread and they got to pick which bread, whole wheat or white, I think, as I had the choices. And then um, they had to try it. Um, (laughs) I was worried. (laughs) So these are some of the sandwich fillings that they had to try. Deviled cheese, flaked fish, bean and applesauce, egg and chicken livers, ground bologna and cheese, liver sausage salad, peanut butter and chow chow, peanut butter and chili sauce, cream cheese and jelly, red kidney bean, liver sandwich spread, peanut butter and Miracle Whip, and peanut butter and fluff. Those last two ones are ones that I included because I wanted them to try them. (laughs) Now, marshmallow fluff, if you've never had this, It is a very fluffy marshmallowy spread that's very popular on the East Coast. And it is a thing. Peanut butter and fluff is something people still eat today. And um, I was very dubious of this one. I'm like, peanut butter and marshmallow? But it's really good, guys. It is. I'm a convert to that stuff. It's really good. Okay, so yeah, those are very interesting sandwich spreads. All of them original recipe ideas. The one that surprised everyone the most was the liver sausage salad. Uh, It's because you use Braunschweiger, which is like a German liver sausage that it tastes a lot like ground up bologna. That's a little bit spicier. And quite a few kids actually like this. And I was really happy (laughs) because, you know, the other two liver sandwich spreads that they chose Oh, they, they were not good, guys. Unless you really love liver. But yeah, those kids were not a fan of those. One of one of the kids really liked the flaked fish. And, you know, it, it was interesting to see these teenagers and, you know, what they were willing to eat in the face of a competition. <laughs> and um, there were a few, you know, races to the drinking fountain um, but overall, I think they were all, you know, pleasantly surprised at how many of the sandwich fillings that they liked. So I just have to give them kudos. I mean, I was so proud of them that they were brave enough to try these no matter 
how gross they thought they were <laughs> and that they found things that they liked and that were unexpected. So good for you guys. Now, the winners of the competition got a prize and the prize was a can of Spam because, you know, appropriate. <laughs> um, it was such a good time and my the kids in my classes learned so much and I'm really excited and happy I was able to teach them about wartime rationing. Hey guys, Sarah here. I wanted to take a little break to tell you about my World War II fiction, The War Between Us. This book earned the Historical Novel Society's Editor's Choice Award, and it's a really unique American home front story about a Korean American's experience with prejudice in World War II. Right now, the ebook is on sale on Amazon for 99 cents from November 7th through the 14th. To learn more about my book, you can go to my website, sarahcrevistonlee.com. And now back to the show. Today's cookbook feature is 300 Helpful Suggestions for Your Victory Lunchbox. This was published by Dell Publishing Company in 1943. It was one of a series of quote unquote hookup cookbooks. It's got a hole right in the middle uh, at the top of the book. But when you open it, there are two holes that you can hang it up on two hooks. It'll keep it open right at your eye level. Really clever concept for a cookbook. And this particular issue is number four in the series. And it is all about your victory lunchbox. I think one of the best features of this cookbook are the pictures. There are a lot of pictures. On the cover is a beautiful color picture of a couple lunchboxes with a variety of paper containers for putting food in, a thermos, and a, even a paper cup uh, and with a variety of foods in the containers. It's just really cool. And inside, there's a picture of school children eating from disposable containers, um, someone at work, someone at the plant. Um, and then inside, they show pictures of people preparing these lunches at home. It is an amazing cookbook. The intro says, win with food. Food management, one of wartime's most important jobs, rests squarely on the shoulders of the American homemaker. Food will win the war and make the peace only if it is administered wisely by the meal planners of the nation, so that supplies will be adequate to meet the ever-increasing demands. Knowing about food is more essential today than ever before in history. In times like these, it is not enough to have a few pet recipes. You have to broaden your food knowledge and honestly look beyond personal tastes and lifetime habits in order to be able to view the food picture as a whole. You should resolve to get out of that old food rut so that you are ready to meet big shifts and shortages and supplies. You should try to conserve in every way possible. Above all, you must choose foods that will provide maximum nourishment and learn how to prepare them correctly so as to avoid loss of nutrients through improper cooking. In these ways, you will help to assure for your family the energy and good health needed to handle added tasks and stepped-up activities. Here is your chance to, as a homemaker, to contribute directly to winning the war. These cookbooks have been prepared to help you not only through present days of readjustment, but in happier times to follow, when the lessons in nutrition, thrift, and adaptability now being learned will make better food managers of us all. I really like this intro. Um, I especially like that they talk about how, you know, people get in these old food ruts. And in order to meet the big shifts and shortages and supplies, you have to have some bigger ideas. You need to have more ideas and to not be in that food rut anymore. And they also talk about how these skills that, you're, that you'll learn now will help you in the future. In this cookbook, um, it has really cool pictures of the different lunch boxes. This is the one that has a picture of the canvas lunch bag, the see-through victory view lunch box, and then the metal lunch box. And each one includes a thermos. It also includes a recipe for a totem poke, 
which is a crocheted lunch bag. But they also point out that you can change this into a snood, which is a really popular hair accessory of the day. So, well, I guess it has two different patterns. One is for the totem poke and one is for the snood. And they're very similar. But anyway, I just think that's really funny. But this was a real thing was women who worked in factories, they had to keep their hair back or they would get in serious head accidents with their hair getting caught up in machinery. Wearing a snood was an answer. Also cutting their hair shorter was an answer. Another really special thing about this cookbook is that it shows four popular sizes of paper containers for the lunchbox. And this is something that I know I didn't think of when I originally started learning about wartime is the different containers and that they had disposable containers back then. Not plastic. I mean, these were all waxed paper, but um, it's really cool detail from wartime. Now, I really wanted to make all of these recipes. <laughs> there are so many cool recipes, but it's got um, a section on beverages, soups, lunchbox breads, sandwich butters, sandwich fillings, which is a pretty hefty section lunchbox meats, main dishes, because sometimes, you know, you don't want a sandwich. It's good to have some other options. Pickup salads, salad dressings, jams, jellies, and relishes that you could include in your lunchbox sandwich. Cakes, little cakes, <laughs> like cupcakes, along with toppings and fillings. Cookies, desserts, including puddings, and confections, so like little candy and fudge type things. And then they have a last section called surprise, surprise. And included in this is Cracker Jack. I wanna try that recipe. Like all of these are so good. So I decided on two different recipes to try for this episode. Um, I like that they include the sandwich butters section because that is another key thing about making wartime lunches is that you spread your bread with butter first, then put on the filling, especially if it's a moisture filling. This was important to keep it from soaking into the bread. So it wasn't just like uh, a palatable thing. I mean, it does add some nice flavor, but it was really to keep the bread from being soggy because there's nothing worse than a soggy sandwich. All right. So First up, I tried school days bread. I wanted to try a new bread recipe I'd never tried before. And I really like the title for this one, school days, in quotes, school days bread. <laughs> At first glance, it is just a regular old bread. It's got yeast, warm water, corn syrup or honey. I used honey, uh, scalded milk. And in this case, I used almond milk just because my son can't have dairy. And I knew he'd probably want a piece of this bread. So I made mine with almond milk. Uh, sifted flour, salt, a melted shortening. And then this is where it gets a little different. It calls for three tablespoons of sifted cocoa. So essentially, this is a chocolate yeast bread. This really intrigued me. So what you do, you soften the yeast in lukewarm water. And then you add a teaspoon of the syrup or the honey. Now it says to only use a half package of yeast. I'm not sure why they asked for this. I don't know if it's a chemical thing with the cocoa, but I just found my bread rose really slowly. And maybe, maybe it's a taste thing. Like maybe you didn't want the yeast flavor to overpower the chocolate flavor. I'm not sure. I might need to try it again with a full package of yeast, uh, which is two and a quarter teaspoons if you have it loose. But um, yeah, because it just rose really slowly. <laughs> All right. So you soften the yeast in the water and then you add that little teaspoon of syrup or honey. Then you let it stand for five minutes. Then you scald your milk and then cool it to lukewarm. You add it to the yeast mixture and beat in half of the flour beating until the batter is smooth. And then you cover and let this rise in a warm place until light and bubbly. This is different than maybe some other bread recipes, um, but this actually really helps improve the flavor of your bread and the texture as well. 
Then after it's light and bubbly, you add salt, the remaining honey or corn syrup, the melted shortening, and the cocoa. You beat that till it's smooth, and then you stir in enough of the remaining flour to make the dough so that it could be handled, and you knead until smooth and elastic. You place it in a grease bowl, you cover and let it rise in a warm place until double in bulk. And for my bread, this took forever. (laughs) Then you punch it down and let it rise again. And then you shape it into a loaf. I think I accidentally skipped the second rising. I would not skip any of the risings in this recipe because this is a sandwich bread. You really want that good, strong gluten texture to be uh, fully formed so um, it can keep its shape when you cut it Um, and for flavor too. All right, then you shape it into a loaf. Place it in a greased bread pan and let rise until double in bulk again. (laughs) And then you bake it in a moderate oven, which is 350 degrees Fahrenheit, 45 to 50 minutes. Then you turn it out on a rack to cool. This makes one loaf. Um, My bread took way longer to bake. I think I had to add like 15 or 20 minutes. Now, I'm not one of the people that you know, taps the loaf to see if it's done. Like that has never worked for me. But one tip that I learned is that you just test the internal temperature of the bread and then you know it's done. And the magic number is 190, 190 degrees Fahrenheit. That's when you know inside it is definitely baked. Another thing I wanted to mention that I learned in another recipe Oh my gosh, I just realized I did make three recipes from this book. So I'll tell you about them all. But what I learned from the other, I made another bread recipe, is that modern bread loaf pans tend to be wider than the vintage ones. So when you're making um, any kind of vintage loaf, make sure you're using a smaller bread pan. And the reason for this is because the amount of dough in the recipe in a larger bread pan, it will spread out and it will be flatter when it's done baking. Um, if you have a little bit smaller loaf pan, it gives that dough the chance to, you know, rise a little higher and it makes a really tall, ra- well-rounded loaf. So I have my bread pan right here. I wanted to make sure I could tell you the right the size that I used that I felt like gave good results. And it is It's 11 and a half centimeters by 21 and a half centimeters. And I use centimeters just because they're a little bit more precise uh, than inches. So yeah, keep that in mind when you're making these vintage bread recipes. Okay, so this school day's bread, it smelled really good in the oven. It smelled yeasty and chocolatey, but I was very curious about how it would taste. I did not taste it when it was warm. I let it sit overnight and I tried it in the morning. I'm not quite sure how to describe this bread because when you're first biting into it, you're thinking, mm, this is a really great homemade bread. But then you get hit with this chocolatey flavor and it's like, wow, <laughs> that's not what I was expecting, but it is so good. It's it's just very lightly sweet. I didn't taste any honey flavor from it because sometimes honey can be overpowering, but in this case, it wasn't. And Um, just a really rich flavor. I'm not going to say it's like, you know, chocolate lovers chocolate. It just has a really good balance of chocolate flavor in there. I did not try it as a sandwich bread. It just tastes too good with just butter on it (laughs) warmed up. But you know, I can see it tasting really good with like a peanut butter and a sweet, you know, jam or something or a cream cheese and a jam or jelly. So I highly recommend this recipe. Super good. And it had a very good texture for a homemade bread. All the extra risings really, really help it. The other recipe that I forgot about <laughs> is a quick bread because I was, I've was i always been so fascinated that lunchbox recipes include quick breads as a sandwich bread option. The original recipe I tried this with years ago was a honey orange nut bread. Oh my gosh. And it was just a revelation. It was so good with cream cheese as a sandwich. So this time I tried a date nut bread and this has 
flour, baking powder, baking soda, salt, brown sugar, one egg, melted butter and margarine, milk, and then nuts, a half cup of nuts chopped and a one cup of dates seeded and finely cut. I thought, I felt it was important to keep the nuts in there just for texture and also for protein value. So what you do, you sift together the flour, the baking powder, the soda, and the salt, and then you add in your sugar and you mix it well, the, the brown sugar. Then you add the remaining ingredients, beating only enough to dampen all the flour. And then you bake it in a greased loaf pan in a moderately slow oven, so 325 degrees Fahrenheit for one hour until done. This also makes one loaf. At the bottom, it has a little note that says it's rich enough to serve as a dessert. It is really good. This is another really good bread recipe. I did try this with butter. I tried it with peanut butter. I tried it with cream cheese. All of them are so good. I really think, well, peanut butter and dates just go really good together. Um, But you could try this with any nut butter that you like. And uh, the nuts that I put in here were walnuts. And I thought they were good. But I think including slivered almonds or pecans would equally be good. The last recipe was a cookie recipe because, you know, a lunch is not the same without cookies. The cookies that I tried were molasses cookies. And at first glance, this is just like a regular old molasses cookie recipe, but it's not. So it calls for three quarters cup melted fat, cup of New Orleans molasses. I don't know. I just used the molasses I had on hand. So I'm not quite sure what the difference is. But then there's a cup of brown sugar uses sour milk or buttermilk. Six cups of sifted flour. (laughs) When you're making this, keep this in mind. That calls for six cups of flour. That's a lot of cookies. Salt, ginger, baking soda. And here was the interesting part. Two teaspoons of lemon extract. Now, I didn't know this before making wartime recipes. But molasses and lemon go really well together. So I got really excited. You mix the fat, molasses, and sugar until smooth. Then you add the sour milk or buttermilk. Then the flour sifted with salt, ginger, and baking soda. Then you add the lemon extract. And then you mix to a smooth stiff dough. And then you chill it until it's firm. Then you roll it out on a floured surface to about a third inch thickness. And then you cut out with cookie cutters. You bake them on a greased baking sheet for 8 to 10 minutes in a 350 degree oven. It, <laughs> oh my, this is where I, I am so notorious for not reading thoroughly through the directions, but at the bottom it says make seven to eight dozen cookies, <laughs> depending on the thickness and size of the cookie cutter. Um, my bad. But luckily, everyone loves these cookies in my family. At the bottom, it does have a note about the lemon extract. It says it may be omitted substituting one teaspoon grated lemon rind or two teaspoons cinnamon. The cinnamon would definitely make it more of a festive holiday cookie. But with the lemon, oh my goodness. So I think gingerbread cookies have to have icing or a frosting of some kind. So I, it does not say this in the recipe, but I made a lemon buttercream frosting using the lemon extract. And oh my goodness, it was so good. There is just something magical about lemon and molasses. I can't even tell you. (laughs) I've made another recipe that was from a wartime, oh, a Westinghouse um, Health for Victory cookbook. It was molasses cupcakes with lemon frosting. That's where I just first discovered this combination. Oh my goodness, guys, you really have to try it. There is just so special. So um, all of these recipes were really great and I will have them on my blog and I hope that you give them a try. Today's story highlight comes from the Farm Journal and Farmer's Wife magazine from the September 1944 issue. There's an article in here called School Lunch Arithmetic child plus good food equals good marks and has a really it has a really cute picture of a little boy eating his school lunch Um, in the article was a really neat story that I wanted to share with you under the title a hot lunch at school helps 
The problem of managing a hot school lunch with limited help and funds was solved by mothers of the Van Meer School Unit in Alger County, Michigan, when they got together as late as September to plan and can. They started to serve hot lunches in October and kept it up until May. The food they canned, plus donated vegetables, soup stock, and milk, furnished most of the materials needed for the daily lunch. The rest was bought with money raised and with a 25-cent assessment per child. The wife of a teacher prepared the one hot dish as her volunteer war work, a 4-H foods club served it, and committees of school children working a week at a time did the dishes. The hot dishes served were vegetable soup and creamed or buttered vegetables, cocoa, puddings, and hot applesauce. The children supplemented the lunch with food brought from home. In this story about how these mothers um, solved a problem of managing and funding, uh, you know, hot school lunches, and, you know, they did the work themselves. And I, I also really like that the wife of a teacher prepared the one hot dish as her volunteer war work. So she considered it her war work. And I think that's so cool. And then 4-H Foods Club served the food. And then children working in committees a week at a time, like did the dishes. And I just love that this community came together to provide these school children with these supplements to their school lunch and that they, they were serving them hot dishes. I think this is a great example of, you know, how one community was trying to solve the problem of making sure that their kids had the nutrition that they needed and that they were doing their best to provide a meal that packed a punch, not just for war workers, but for their school children as well. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. If you or your family have American Homefront stories, I would love to be able to share them on my podcast. To share your story, go to VictoryKitchenPodcast.com and click on Share a Homefront Story. Don't forget you can follow me on Instagram. My handle is Victory Kitchen Podcast, and on there I give a um, little behind the scenes of what I'm working on, research that I find, and recipes that I come across. And I would also love your support, which helps to keep this podcast going. To do so, go to anchor.fm slash Sarah Crevison Lee and click on support. Thanks so much for listening and I'll talk to you next time. Bye.